Welcome to episode four of The Tomorrow Farm, a new podcast from Bayer, examining what's possible for society based on what's possible in agriculture. I'm Vonnie Lee, and in this episode, we'll journey from the days of Charles Darwin to the future of food and medicine as we know it. So far, we've explored our fast-changing climate, the digital revolution and its total overhaul of the way we live, work and communicate. And finally, our fluid definitions for what sustainability really means and requires. The common thread? Change may be the most consistent thing in human history. archaeology we have a joke where if we can't explain something it's probably cultural <laughs> quote unquote marks um, and we don't know what happened with them my name is dr michael rivera i am a biological anthropologist uh, which means that i study humans and i especially study the evolution of humans and you know the six million year story that has led to homo sapiens uh, living all around the world today in all different ways I know we started off as like Neanderthals and then we've just like ended up homo sapiens. No? Is that not the beginning? So there, there's like a whole evolutionary tree uh, with all of our different um, ancestors, like with different species names, like in the tree. And you're right that somewhere near the top, you're going to find Neanderthals and homo sapiens. And the Neanderthals were the last ones, one of the last ones to sort of perish and then leave us to be the only species left. So why do you think we survive then? I know that you talked about, you know, it's not something conscious and sometimes it is a matter of luck, you know, survival of the fittest. Do you think, do you think there was something else though? You know, what made us better, the stronger species? I was surprised to find that Dr. Rivera didn't give us Homo sapiens much credit. Though advantageous genes did obviously get passed on, it wasn't necessarily intentional. And a lot of it had to do with being in the right place at the right time, even such a long time ago. One thing that did set us apart is our ability to record our history and communicate across generations. Well, I would say that to do with like tools and technology, the, the real thing I think is unique to our species is our, also our ability to transmit it to others. So it still happens sometimes in other primate species like, like chimpanzees and bonobos, uh, where maybe the, the younger chimpanzee, the younger animal is watching um, you know, their older brother or their mother do it, and then they're going to copy it. But there isn't anything like what we humans do, which is actually you know, draw on the cave wall what we're doing. Like, oh yeah, we invent these things called spears and we drive them into woolly mammoths. Like that is all depicted in art and in writing and in hieroglyphs, that I think is, is something quite unique. It's the ability to record what we're doing symbolically. Wow, that is amazing. These evolutionary forces are what we scientists would call selective evolution forces. Like these are selective forces, meaning that we're talking, we're trying to find out traits that are selected for, that are sort of naturally adapted and then, you know, naturally leading to their genes being passed on for those traits. But there's also a whole host of other evolutionary forces, which we call neutral ones, which means that it doesn't have anything to do with, you know, a trait being advantageous or not. It's just random chance. And that happens too in human evolution. Oh, this is just so fascinating because what you're telling me is we're genetically 
evolving all the time, even now as we speak. Certainly. This really started with fruit flies. That's Larry Gilbertson, a molecular biology PhD and biotechnologist. He leads what's called applied genome modification for Bayer. Any questions you've basically ever had about genetics and gene editing, he can answer. I often try to remind people, humans have been changing DNA long before they knew what DNA was, long before they knew what a molecule was. So as long as humans have been growing plants for consumption to eat and always trying to find ways to pick the best plants and choose the best seeds from the best plants, when they've been doing that, they've actually been changing the DNA of those plants over time, over thousands of years. I asked Larry what this all has to do with fruit flies. Genetics really has a foundation in fruit flies for reasons that I won't get into right now. Back in the early 1900s, fruit flies normally have red eyes. Next time you see a fruit fly on your banana, take a close look, you'll see little red eyes. And then in the laboratory, they were able to find some that had white eyes. So they considered the red eye to be the normal form, also known as wild type, and then the white eyes to be mutated. But the question is, what's the normal form? Think about that with humans. <laughs> what's the normal form? We are all mutants, That's right. is and what so, you're saying. But we, yeah. <laughs> and so we have differences in our DNA. So if you think about it that way, we're all, in a way, we're all mutants. Larry's point about what we consider quote-unquote normal gets me thinking. What other things like fruit flies, like people even, do we make assumptions about? What other definitions of normal have gone unexamined? Larry's answer surprised me. Corn. Wait, corn? Corn came from a progenitor plant called Teosinte. Teosinte was found oh, around nine or 10,000 years ago in the Balsas River region of Mexico. But it was a very tough crop to eat. It had about somewhere between 10 and 20 seeds on what we might now call the ear, I guess. And they were really hard. They were like little rocks. This outer, tough outer fruit case. Um, there was, there's one type of mutation, one change in the DNA that really changed that. Inside that fruitcase was basically what the grain, what we now call the kernel. And so that one change, that one change removed that fruitcase and now exposed this naked grain, this kernel, which is now soft. We can eat it and we can grind it when it's mature and uh, make it into meal and things like that. And somewhere along the line, humans selected, without even knowing it, a plant that had a mutation in a gene. And this took place over thousands of years. All plants that we eat now went through something like that, but that's one of the best known stories. So we, as humans, have been manipulating DNA, even unintentionally, since the beginning of time. Every time we choose one plant over another, even one partner over another, we slowly exercised some minute control over the next generation. And as Larry mentioned, we had no idea we were doing it. It made me wonder, when did we start to understand? The first names that come to mind when you start to think about DNA, genes, chromosomes, genetics, are people like Gregor Mendel, Charles Darwin, 
Barbara McClintock, and others. So Gregor Mendel is often seen as the person who really discovered that there's something that can be inherited from one organism to the next. He was working with pea plants, and plants that had different characteristics, tall or short, or the peas were smooth or wrinkled, and so on, and he would cross these plants together and then look to see what happened in the next generation when he planted those seeds. He concluded that there must be something, now he didn't know what it was, didn't know what DNA was, but there must be something that is being passed on from generation to generation. And in fact, to this day, we still call it Mendelian genetics because it's so foundational. Mendel's seminal paper, Experiments on Plant Hybridization, was published way back in 1866. So even as an academic field, genetics is old. Okay. Who is Norman Borlaug? Because he won a Nobel Prize for his work. Yes. So Norman Borlaug is one of my heroes, the hero of many of us here, because he really laid the groundwork for modern plant breeding. So Norman Borlaug really started to do the work that he's now very famous for when he moved to Mexico and started breeding wheat. And so by this point, Mendelian genetics was known, Mendel's work was known. And at that time, there was a huge threat to the wheat, um, the wheat crop around the world from a disease called stem rust. And he was trying really hard to find wheat plants that were resistant to this. And he did this through simple hard work of crossing plants together, thousands and thousands of wheat plants together, collecting the seeds from those crosses, planting those and keeping track of them and looking for varieties, progeny of those crosses that now had the disease resistance. Wow. It's, a, it's an amazing story. It eventually gave rise to what was later called the Green Revolution, mm -hmm. and that's what he was awarded the Nobel Prize for. The Green Revolution, despite its name, was not a renewable energy platform. It was an incredible increase in agricultural production worldwide in the 1950s and 1960s that literally, at the time, solved world hunger. When he won the Nobel, Borlaug was credited with saving more than a billion people from starvation. And remember, in 1970, the year he won, that was almost a third of the world population. When he accepted his prize, Borlaug remarked that we are dealing with two opposing forces, the scientific power of food production and the biological power of human reproduction. Man has made amazing progress recently in his potential mastery of these two contending powers. As the field of genetics found its academic footing, amazing progress wasn't limited to agriculture. The field was developing in parallel in medicine. I love that DNA changes over time. Um, you know, it has some, some negative effects. This is where most diseases come from. This is where most cancers come from. But it is also what has given rise to every living thing. You, me, everything. The genetic basis of many hereditary diseases is something the medical community has become increasingly focused on in recent years. And many cutting-edge experimental treatments use the same technology Larry does in his own lab. What follows is an excerpt of an NPR piece from December 2019. 
It's about a Mississippi woman's experience with a pioneering treatment using gene editing to treat sickle cell anemia. But then, Victoria heard about something new. Doctors were planning to test a gene editing technique called CRISPR to try to treat sickle cell. Victoria jumped at the chance to volunteer. Hey, Victoria. How are you doing today? I'm doing okay, Dr. Frangu. That's great. Dr. Heider Frangul is starting the study. How was it last night? Last night, it went pretty well. CRISPR lets scientists make very precise changes in DNA much more easily than ever before. They can actually zero in on any part of the genetic code, so doctors think it may give them a powerful new way to fight cancer, heart disease, even AIDS. CRISPR technology has a lot of potential use in the future, not only in blood disorders, in other genetic disorders to help many other patients. Now here's how CRISPR might help sickle cell patients like Victoria. Sickle cell is caused by a defective protein called hemoglobin. It's what red blood cells need to carry oxygen around the body. So when it's defective, red blood cells don't work. They jam up the bloodstream. Frangul hopes to solve this problem using something called fetal hemoglobin. It's what fetuses use to get oxygen when they're in the womb. Once a baby is born, a switch will flip on. It's a gene that tells the red blood cell, the bone marrow cells that produce red cells, to stop making fetal hemoglobin. So Frangul is using cells that scientists edit with CRISPR to flip that fetal hemoglobin switch to turn the production of healthy fetal hemoglobin back on. What we are trying to do here is we are trying to introduce enough hemoglobin, fetal hemoglobin, into the red blood cell to make the red blood cell go back to being happy, squishy, and not sticky and hard, and can go deliver oxygen where it's supposed to. So first, Frank Gould gets some of Victoria's bone marrow cells. Next, he sends them off to a lab where scientists edit a gene in the cells. Then, Victoria gets a grueling round of chemotherapy to make room in her bone marrow for the edited cells. Let's go for it. Finally, Dr. Frangul infuses more than 2 billion of those genetically modified cells into her body. The hospital recorded the procedure. Yep. A nurse hands Dr. Frangul a big syringe filled with the edited cells. Okay, perfect. He pushes the plunger. We're almost done. Yeah. When it went in, my heart rate shot up real high and um, kind of made it hard to breathe. So that was a little scary, tough moment for me. After that, I cried, but it was happy tears. <laughs> you know, just kind of overwhelming after all that I had went through to finally get what I came for. <laughs> now, these cells won't cure sickle cell, but the hope is they'll prevent the terrible complications of the disease. And this opens the door for many patients to potentially be treated uh, and have their disease modified to become mild or cause them no long-term side effects from the horrible, horrible side effects of sickle cell disease. Victoria calls her new gene-edited cells her... Super cells. Yes, they gotta be super, do great things in my body, you know, and to help me be better, you know, and help me have more time with my kids and my family. These types of treatments aren't just visionary. They're happening right now all over the country. And who... Or what do we have to thank? Clusters of regularly interspaced short palindromic repeats, or as it's more colloquially known, CRISPR. We're going to use this gene gun 
to deliver the CRISPR protein to some plant cells on these soybean embryos right here. I'm back with Larry now in a lab where he actually uses the exact same technology Dr. Frangle does to genetically edit plant seed. This is the laboratory where we do gene editing, and we're going to show you a couple of the basic steps of gene editing. There's a couple of ways we can do this, and we're going to show you a way that involves something that we call the gene gun, which is right here. Oh, Let's amazing. How exciting. Thank you. Another scientist who works with Larry, Michelle Valentine, stepped in to show me how to exactly shoot the seed. So like Larry said, this is the gene gun, and then we have different parts that we have to assemble for each shot. And this is the protein? Right, so this is actually protein coated on uh, gold particles. And so the gold is, it's pretty heavy, so it gives it some weight. And so that helps the protein go down into the plant. So, so hang on, you're infusing the plant with gold? I'd heard of a silver bullet, but never a golden one. Should I just yeah. pick it up? Yeah. So this will tighten it down. And this goes in there. And then the last thing we need is what we're going to shoot, which is the soybean. So that gets centered in there. And when that gun shoots, it will shoot everything in that dish. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty centered. Yeah, um, it would just... Oh! That's it, that poof. That's it? Poof! I edited a gene, or could have. In this demonstration, we didn't make any actual changes, but I did get to see the mechanics of some of the most cutting-edge technology on Earth. And you know, once I did it, it wasn't as far-fetched as it seemed. Having just wielded a gene gun, I asked Larry the difference between what I'd just done and genetic modification, or GMOs. Reading and biotechnology, GMOs, and gene editing are all about making changes in DNA. Basically, Larry explained that they're all different ways of doing the same thing. Breeding is the long and tedious process of pairing parents with traits you hope to pass on so that you get better progeny. Gene editing is the process of making changes in the plant's own genes. And those, those changes tend to be small. And finally, GMOs, or genetically modified organisms, are what results when scientists insert a gene that wasn't there before. In agriculture, an example that's been around for decades now is Bt corn, which has a gene that originated in bacteria that makes it resistant to certain insects. We think of them as tools in a toolbox. We'll use the best tool that's needed in order to get the solutions that we need, that farmers need, and that consumers need, including being able to, to grow our food in a more sustainable way and minimize the impact of agriculture on the environment. There's been a, a lot of significant environmental value that's come out of the application of GMOs, and my expectation is gene editing will do the same thing. I'm walking through one of the big research greenhouses now with an expert plant breeder named Dr. Mike Graham. We are in a complicated space with lots of high-tech stuff, lots of cables on the floors, stuff hanging from holes. After a seed embryo gets edited, eventually the plant it grows goes on to live here, where it's studied closely by people like Mike and his team. I'm Mike Graham, uh, head of plant breeding at Bayer Crop Science. Uh, I have been part of Bayer now for over 25 years, and I'm based in Chesterfield, Missouri. It's quite appropriate, possibly even fated, that Mike works in breeding, given that most of his family are professional plant breeders. You could say it's in his genes. 
My father was a plant breeder, and my brother and I were always um, his cheap labor. So um, he would take us on trips. Uh, we would be the ones involved in planting his experiments. We would be the ones involved in harvesting his experiments. On the weekend, he would load us in the car, and um, he would take us to one of his experiments, and we would either help him take notes, um, help him gain new insights or take, uh, uh, just what he's seeing. And it, it, I can always remember, because it was, it was a it was two-hour drive from where we lived to some of these experiments, and um, he would always use the two hours to tell about innovation and how he saw science having a real impact. So far, I'd been learning about breeding and biotech in mostly abstract philosophical terms. What the research hoped to accomplish, what might be possible in the future, but what impact was it having right now? It was pretty obvious in medicine. What's about agriculture? So, so tell me about WEMA. So WEMA, WEMA is actually a, a, one of these great uh, projects that started between a collaboration with the Gates Foundation. And the, the project was really focused on um, a key area of how do we provide uh, growers, smallholder farmers in Africa with products that could tolerate drought in a way that they were not available in the market. Now, the outcome is, is truly incredible because the intent was to drive yield levels 25% versus what they were when we started the program. And we achieved a number that was significantly higher. We also were able to develop 100 hybrids already that are now available for smallholder farmers. Remember, smallholder farmers refer to people working 10 hectares or less, and they make up some 500 million of the world's farms, producing about 80% of all food consumed in Asia and sub-Saharan Africa. If you start looking at uh, climate change, if you start thinking about uh, maps of what the future looks like, the reality is the environments that are going to get um, hit with the highest impact are likely in some of the areas that have the the highest number of smallholder farmers. So drought will be devastating. And so um, this is not a problem that we can wait to solve. And say you left this job and this position yeah. tomorrow yeah. and someone else took over, yeah. you know, what would you like to see? You know, what, what would you like to see happen, even if it wasn't part of your work anymore? I actually haven't thought about this. That's a good question. Um, I would like to see it continue to move in this trajectory of design with an emphasis on, on really solving big world problems that I believe we can. I think through these new technologies that we have, um, we, so we, gene editing through data science, um, we're just at the beginning of thinking about how do we apply them to a breeding program. So we've made a lot of changes. But it's really the, the, the merger of all of them that are going to have the biggest impact. Mike told me it was actually the advent of data science and its potential applications that convinced him to pursue the family career path. What I found personally is um, when I was getting into kind of the end of my, my uh, undergrad degree and then going on and doing my graduate degree, is all of the technology that was evolving in different parts uh, in medicine was also getting directed at agriculture. And um, you could see now the, the, the confluence of all of that technology really, really coming together of what agriculture could look like. 
The confluence of that technology of advanced data science layered with advances in genetics and gene editing really interested me. It seemed like together, anything was possible. Originally, I was interested in human genetics as an undergraduate, and my, my advisor recommended that I work on plants. But what he said that stuck with me was he said, DNA is DNA. Humans have it, plants have it, animals, anything that's alive has DNA. It was an early understanding that I could start in one area, but apply what I was learning in other places. I'm Ruth Wagner, and I work here at Bayer's Chesterfield, Missouri site, and I am the head of our data science and analytics organization within plant biotechnology. So your work in the data science and all the analytics that you, you're, you're producing is just, it's, it's at the moment limitless because you're at the Feels beginning. Like it. You're at the beginning, aren't you? We are. Like you said, 10 years ago, what attracted you to this field of genetics mm -hmm. in the first place. We still have the simple foundations of what we do. Um, we still have the A's, T's, C's, and G's. We still have inheritance. I'm sitting and watching the, the analytics change too to help discover new things, come up with new questions, but also answer questions that we have, um, things that we couldn't answer before or answer them in a better way than what we could have done before. And in reality, with the science, we can, we can say, let's design the needle, let's design needles instead of looking for needles in a haystack. AI is really interesting right now and not just in the egg industry. So when you think about using your cell phone and having voice recognition on there, um, text, texting or even just having your voicemails translated um, into words for you, we, we use artificial intelligence products every day. Um, I have Amazon Alexa's around in my house. Um, so my, it's interesting to see my kids growing up with this technology kind of right, right, at, right at your hands. And what's interesting about this is, um, one, it's, it's cross-industry. Hi, I'm Randy Foraker, and I direct the Center for Population Health Informatics at Washington University in St. Louis. And what's exciting for me is in this era of big data, and needing to harness it all for good and to impact human health, it really takes an interdisciplinary team. An epidemiologist by training, Dr. Foraker now works with departments across Washington University and with organizations across the region to create knowledge from data. I think that's what data science actually adds to this field is an agnostic approach, if you will, to the data that we all have access to every day. So my daughter and I have a fitness app and you know, it counts whatever steps we've done and what we've eaten. So it could be literally data like that from, from my phone that's giving you information. That's right. I have colleagues in computer science at Washington University in St. Louis who are using Fitbit data to predict hospitalizations among heart failure patients. Wow. And what we hope is to be able to deliver these algorithms at the right time mm -hmm. to the right people so that they can act on these data early. Wow. Because that is really what's critical is when a patient is considering with their doctor what treatment they're going to get for their cancer, they could certainly use these risk algorithms to help them weigh the pros and cons of a given treatment. As clear as the value is, Dr. Foraker says there can be a gap between scientific understanding and public reception. 
she views herself and her work as a sort of intermediary. I think that's what's so important about having a data translator on board to help get these messages to lay audiences, because it's often the case that science is out of people's reach or it feels somehow not trustworthy because it's hard to understand and we speak in jargon. And so making sure that we get these critical messages to the lay public, I think is is a very important role for us as scientists. As we continue to better understand the building blocks of all life and apply data science to accelerate that understanding, there's no question that our scientific landscape is changing. And thank goodness for those changes. We wouldn't be here talking about (laughs) this right now if it weren't for those changes. And there's nothing that can be done to stop it. Larry was talking about DNA itself, but he could just easily be talking about scientific knowledge in general. When his hero, Norman Borlaug, one of the earliest pioneers in genetics, accepted his Nobel Prize, he seemed to realize something. That change was, in fact, constant, and that the work being done within agriculture had boundless potential. It is true that the tide of battle against hunger has changed for the better during these past three years. But tides have a way of flowing and ebbing again. I want to devote my remarks to commendation of the Nobel Committee, which has, uh, with uh, great wisdom, recognized the actual and potential contributions of the agricultural production to prosperity and peace among the nations and peoples of the world. You can find episodes one, two, and three of The Tomorrow Farm wherever you find your podcasts. And if you want an even richer experience with behind-the-scenes footage and more detail that couldn't be squeezed into this episode, go to cropscience.bayer.com. That's cropscience.bayer.com. Thanks to doctors Mike Graham, Larry Gilbertson, Ruth Wagner, Michael Rivera, and Randy Foraker for contributing to this episode. Thank you to NPR's All Things Considered for the interview with Victoria Gray. NPR owns all rights to the audio. Thank you to NRK Content for the usage of the Norman Borlaug Nobel Acceptance Speech from 1970. NRK own all rights to the footage. To our audio crew, Bernie, Jay and Brent, and our video crew, Sean, Kirsten and Brandon, thank you for finding ways to make us look and sound better than we do. Thanks for the infinite patience of our producer, Thomas, himself an ALL survivor. And thank you to everyone at Bayer who made this possible and let us run wild. Beth, Danielle, Lindsay, Chris, and most especially Julia. This has been Bonnie Lee on The Tomorrow Farm. Quote from the Norman Borlaug Nobel Prize acceptance speech from 1970. Copyright the Nobel Foundation. Source, nobelprize.org.